And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and hopefully this will go well, because my computer was a little slow on that intro. And Ricky, you've been having internet problems all afternoon and evening, so this could be quite the show. Yeah, it, it's it was working fine. I, I texted you earlier and said, I'm having issues. Yeah. Hopefully it'll come up. And then it was working fine. And I walked away just for a minute to go get some coffee. And I come back and I'm like, why isn't like this sending to Mike? I was trying to send you the link. I'm like, what's going on? And then I look down and it shows on the bottom of my screen this little world. And whenever I see that, it means my internet's off. It doesn't have like the little uh -huh. dot with the waves going out. And yep. I'm like, what's going on? And I look back and my, my little router back there had a orange light on it. And I was like, oh, I have to keep unplugging it, plugging it back in. So I'm going to have to call my internet company and just say, Hey, what's going on? Because this is constantly shutting off on me and it's getting worse and worse. And so I thought maybe it could be because we're having a bit of a, a rainy day out there. Maybe it's affecting the wire outside somehow. I don't know. It shouldn't, you know yeah, what I mean? But could, but we're here and hopefully we'll see how yes, long I'll be here. Hard. And maybe uh, if your internet's running slow too today, I don't know what it is, what's going on. Maybe yeah, I don't know. I don't know maybe if... it's because I heard I heard over the weekend the world was supposed to end. I don't know. Did you hear that? Oh. I I saw that um I saw a video about that. Yeah. Um maybe the rapture happened, we just don't know. Yeah. That's why we're having technical difficulties because all the Christians got raptured up from the internet yeah. companies. <laughs> we'll talk about equal weights and measures later when we talk about internet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Cynthia, hello. Thanks for joining in. So we start getting into Proverbs 20. We're almost there. We're like two thirds of the way, almost two thirds mm -hmm. of the way through this book. It's a long book. It is, it is. And it gets a little, I don't want to say difficult, but when you're going the first, I don't know, what was it, like seven chapters or so, it's kind of easier to navigate through. But then as you yeah. get further into it, it's not like a, it's all just flowing like in one contextual thing. It's often, here's a, here's a verse of wisdom, here's another verse of wisdom, and it's like, Trying to put it together, it's a little harder, I would say, for me looking at it and trying to like get the like you can't read like a couple of verses before and say, Oh, it goes with here. You know what I mean? If that yeah. makes sense. The, com the commentators bear, bear that out, in which they try to group them together and each commentator groups them together differently and sees them in different ways, even the two that I kind of look through that try to group them together, they're just all over the place yeah. when it comes to how to bring these, these together. Um, I think and in part of it is it's foreign to us. We don't usually collect proverbs in this way. Mm -hmm. And to, and that there is no kind of, handbook on how to read proverbs that was handed down to us by solomon yeah 
which would probably make it difficult for those pastors or I know they they'll they'll preach through but it may be one of those where you see it's like a verse or two for the sermon that they go for 45 minutes or an hour or 30 minutes however long they yeah. may go on just that verse or the two verses um because again you can't really like in a chapter of maybe the book of Colossians or so you can kind of break it down in its context. And like, here's a thought I can go from verse one to whatever, you know what I mean? And, and it doesn't really flow like that for us uh, as we read it here in these uh, uh, following chapters in uh, uh, Proverbs, but it still is wisdom. It's wisdom from the Lord. It's wisdom literature. And it's very helpful for us as believers to kind of work our way through it, which is why we've, we've suggested in the past that if you read a chapter a day from the Proverbs, you're going to be taking in that wisdom every day. Plus, you're going to get some Bible reading in. Um, I would encourage you to read more than just a proverb a day, but uh, at least you would be getting Scripture in every day. Yeah. So let's move on. Let's start it because we know we're going to go over. There's 15 verses. There's no way we're going to get it done in 50 minutes. Let's just be frank. We've tried. But verse 1, chapter 20. Wine is a mocker. Straw drink is a brawler. Brawler, sorry. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. What you got for us, Ricky? Well, when you think about this verse, um, I think about my times in the military. You know, when mm -hmm. we would go out, uh, and un I was unsaved man, even though I believed I was a Christian, but I'm living like the world, unsaved, didn't know Christ. Uh, I knew of him, but I didn't have that uh, personal relationship with him. I wasn't transformed by, you know, experiencing new life in Christ. And so when you go out and you drink, um, and even others in my life that I know who were drinkers, you know, family members, you know, wasn't much of wine in my life or in the lives of those who I knew who drunk, but strong drink, it's a brawler. It, it makes you do stupid things. It makes you say stupid things. Um, and it gets you in trouble. Like whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And you make and do foolish things, stupid things, you know? And, and then you say, well, I was under the influence. You know, I remember uh, one, one um, night when I was stationed in Korea where we went out and we was at these bars and we were getting drunk and driving back on the bus because we had to be back by curfew my first sergeant was on that bus and i didn't know it and i was so drunk that i was just saying all kinds of things and you know what i mean because i didn't have no control over my mind over my mouth over my actions right and that's not an excuse yeah. but then the consequences come because uh -huh. here's my first sergeant who was just down in in this area he wasn't out at the bars drinking he was doing some shopping or whatever he was doing on that base and now here I got to deal. I, he's going to deal with me now later for, for my actions. Right. And so it's not an excuse, but it, you're just stupid. You're, you're led astray. It's not wise. Yeah. I think it's important to aspect to think about is wine is a mocker. 
the strong drink is a brawler, but it's whoever's led astray. Mm-hmm. One commentator I was looking at this was talking about that you see beer and wine in different contexts within the Old Testament. For example, Ecclesiastes 10.19. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. And so this proverb isn't saying kind of maybe the a position of teetotaling in which all alcohol bad and, and no drink, but that there is this aspect of being led astray, letting it control you, mm-hmm. kind of in the case that you're talking about. And probably what we see most often um, on the news dealing with alcoholism, kind of to put the name to it, of people who are now being controlled by the drink instead of mastery and self-control over it. Paul tells Timothy to have a little wine for his stomach. Mm -hmm. There is something good there. God has given it to us to be something to be enjoyed. But like other things, when it becomes ruling in our lives, it's now crossed that bound. And so to think about this verse is to think about what does it mean to have self-control? over wine and strong drink. I think it's maybe what we could say is whiskey. Yeah. And and I think it's good that that you bring that up there because we don't hold to that position of, as you said, teetotaling. We we don't, we don't hold to this position that it is sinful to drink wine or if somebody had a beer, but as you're saying there, Mike, and, and you can continue, but just this, this idea of it, it has control of you. So you don't have uh-huh. self-control because it is, you're so inebriated with this alcohol that you cannot act in accordance with a sound mind, sound thinking, sound speech. You know, yeah. I mean, think about when they pull you over on the side of the road, those who have been drinking and driving and they do the sobriety test. You can't walk a straight line. You're slurring your speech, you, you know, um, and that's just you don't have control. Yeah, and so I think, and it's okay to make the choice to not drink. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you have to drink, that there's freedom here, and but ultimately, as the New Testament say, don't get drunk. It's okay to have a little wine. It's okay to. If you like beer, beer or bourbon, since I'm in Kentucky, you, those are good things when used properly mm-hmm. and in their place. And the proverb is very much stressing, kind of the, the idea of having self-control, controlling your intake and kind of knowing how it is. And if this is a sin issue and you decide, you know what? No alcohol. You're free to do that. Um, don't impose your freedom on others, people that maybe do enjoy it. So there is that balancing act. But even like at Southern, they have a policy that I'm not allowed to do. I was not allowed to drink alcohol as a student at Southern. It's part of the covenant I signed every semester. And so in that case, I didn't have the freedom to drink if I chose to, if I wanted to. And I think that's because of in line of what Southern Baptists kind of believe 
but there is again using our freedom for good there's times to enjoy the good pleasure and there's times to not to and this proverb really then focuses on when you do understand that wine's a mocker mm -hmm. strong drinks is a brawler it causes issues it causes foolishness when you're not when you're led astray by it and i mean it says it it is not wise you become right. the fool you become one whom in one sense hates god yeah and so really think about the actions in which we choose especially when we partake of things that may affect us mentally yeah, and Gil actually even takes this to that spiritual sense of things where we, and he says in his commentary on this or his exposition of this, he says, this may be applied to the wine of fornication or to the false doctrine and superstition of the church of Rome. Of course, at that time, everything's Rome. But even when we think and apply it to what we see in the world today, in the, the evangelical churches today, but he says, the church of Rome, with which the nations of the earth are deceived and made drunk and which puts them upon blaspheming God, as you said, you're, you're kind of, you're blaspheming against God, um, deriding his people and using cruelty to them. And he gives references to Revelation 17, 2 and 3, where it says, yeah. whom with the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality <clears throat> and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Next verse up here. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on scarlet beasts, full of blasphemous names, and had the seven heads and the thorns. And then also in Revelation 18, 3, it says, For the nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. So he's pulling that and showing this, this accepting of this, again, not being wise and falling into this blasphemous, idolatrous kind of way. Yeah. Which leads really well to verse two, when you think about what they're doing and that the terror of a king is like a ro the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Now I've kind of probably making it around the other way in which you see these people enacting against God, who is the king over all the earth. And provoking him to anger, and they will lose their life of internal judgment. Obviously, here in Solomon, he's going from a lesser to greater arg greater argument as we think about the king's just interaction with people of authority and the the tear that the government has in, in acting against crimes and laws, and how much more than kind of even in which the kings, Psalm 2, rail against the sun, the ultimate king will find their judgment. And to kind of think through even Gill's analogy of using revelation on sexual morality and the terror in which the king will come upon them in the last days. Yeah. Yeah, and he also, when you look at this, we talked about this last time when we talked in chapter 19, because in verse 19, 12, it says, a king's wrath is like a growling of a lion, but his favor is the dew of the grass. Uh -huh. So again, that's being repeated here in, in chapter 20.
So, moving on, verse three. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. I don't know about you, this kind of hit me hard, especially mm -hmm. thinking of um, maybe past experiences I've had with people and even maybe Twitter or a discernment ministry, I think might fall in this. And to, to think about the idea of like every fool quarrels goes out there, gets in the fight. Now, there are times to stand and there's times to fight. But even Paul notices and tells Timothy not to be quarrelsome, not right. to be the one who gets into quarrels. And there's, so there's now this, this fool who has no social standing because they're always in fights versus the, the man who kind of – one commentator has – says the gravitas of a, of a man who stays away from strife, stays away from kind of worthless quarreling, you know, obviously standing for the truth, defending the truth, but isn't seeking to get into quarreling of words and then kind of unnecessarily quarreling. They're not one who's trying to find quarrels to get into either. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the ESV, as you read, it says keeps aloof from strife and the King James says, um, uh, it's an honor for a man to cease from strife. So this ceasing to, um, yeah. putting an end to it. And, and, and it, I think of, and I brought up in my notes here, uh, Genesis 13 with Abraham, it says, and there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at that time. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then the next verse, verse eight says, then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. And what does, what does Abram do in this? Now, Abram doesn't have strife with Lot. It's his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen having strife over the land where their, their cattle is going to graze. And he looks to Lot to cease the strife. I don't want no strife. You take uh -huh. the land that you want. And of course, what does Lot do? He looks to the land that looks, you know, wonderful and, and, and um, uh, bountiful. And so he, he goes that way and ends up going towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. But Abram's trying to uh, like, look, I don't want there to be strife between us. As you mentioned with discernment uh, ministries and whatnot, if, if we wanted G220 radio to, to grow uh, like substantially and to just have a, a large amount of people watching and subscribing to our channel, not that we don't want people to subscribe, not that we don't want people to watch, but if we wanted to just gain large followings, all we have to do is go get in strife with every other ministry out there because yeah. people are drawn for whatever reason. It's sad to say this. I've even have to check myself in this you want to oh so-and-so's beefing with so-and-so uh so-and-so's going back and forth making videos with so-and-so like let's find out what's going on right it it the contention draws people but as christians is that really what we want to be known for being contentious being someone who's always in strife with others and as you said there is a time and a place to call out false teaching or to call out error or to speak against something. Maybe it's a brother 
who's teaching something wrongly. It, there's a time and place where you can do that. But if your whole um, character uh, as an individual is for strife and for quarreling, you're a fool, right? It's That's what it says. Every fool will be quarreling. Yeah, and I just... I know in just my own life, especially, I mean, the kind of the cage stage Calvinism or even just case stage anything that you've realized you've misunderstood your entire life and now you have to correct everyone mm-hmm. because they're all wrong if they disagree with you. I think this plays a part of it. We think of great men like R.C. Sproul. He fought battles. He fought for the supremacy of scripture. He fought kind of against evangelicals who were trying to get nice and cozy with Rome. He fought against that. He held his ground, but no one would say he was a contentious person. Mm. He wasn't looking for the fight. When the fight came, he was ready and he defended, but he wasn't going out. I think that just illustrates more just even Jesus's beatitude is blessed is the poor or blessed is the peacemaker. Mm. And even thinking more about that in that God is a God who tries to seek peace with his enemies. The whole redemptive story is in one sense, when we look at it, is God trying to make peace with those who are who are his enemies, who have rebelled against him. And he seeks to make peace by sending his son to make the offering that those who believe can no longer be his enemies and not just friends, but part of the family. And to think about, again, just, God defends his own honor. There is aspects of that. But that God is not a God who wants to quarrel. He God who seeks. Now he is the just judge of all the earth and he will uh he will give the consequences due to those who do not repent and trust in him. But for the foremost, the Bible is about a God who seeks to reconcile a group of people to himself. Yeah, And that should be completely considered and to think about even the idea of quarrelsome is an idea that is kind of against God. God is not a quarrelsome person. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's good for uh, our listeners to know as well as, as speaking to ourselves, right. As we grow in Christian maturity, that should be less and less like what we look like. Right. So, uh-huh. As you mentioned, the cage stage kind of, you know, you come out of dispensationalism. Yes, we believe dispensationalism is is wrong, um, but you come out of it and you want to correct everyone or tell them about what they're not seeing because your eyes have been opened to the scriptures in a way that their eyes have not, right? I mean, that's what we believe. Now, they would believe the opposite of that. But you can get into those kind of stages where you end up quarreling with people brothers and sisters in Christ over that. And again, we've already mentioned, it's not that we can't discuss the differences in theology and talk about them, but I think 
in my own personal life, as I think about this verse and how it applies to me and how it has applied to me in my, my life and as I've matured in Christ and will continue, I pray, to, to mature more and more uh, as I continue to grow in my walk with the Lord. But I'm not so... I don't desire to have those kind of arguments with brothers and sisters. I want to talk about theology because I love to talk about theology, but yeah. I don't want to put someone out of the kingdom because they're not a Calvinist or they're not a, uh, um, or they're dispensational or they believe in baptizing babies or they have some view of uh, post-millennialism theonomy kind of uh, belief that maybe we don't hold to, right? So those types of, of things are not things I want to put brothers and sisters out of the faith for. I want to have unity with my brothers and sisters. I don't want to quarrel with them. I want to discuss theology because iron sharpens iron. It helps me grow. It helps them grow, you know, and, and it helps us to be corrected where maybe we're not seeing something in the Bible, but not in such a way, like you said, Mike, and the scriptures is telling us here, not in this quarrelsome way. Let's cease from strife. We don't need to go back and forth with a brother and sister in Christ as if we're enemies, right? Yeah. Verse 4 also talks about going back and forth, but with the plow. It says, The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He seeks at har He will seek at harvest and have nothing. This one kind of threw me a loop. I actually had to look up some background information on this one. And why they would plow and harvest, what we would call harvest, which is I try to reflect a harvest theme in the background. That's the best that they had. Sorry, it has the right colors, I guess. <laughs> Looks um, like the world on fire. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Probably more app. Um, the, the reason why they talk about the slugger plowing in autumn is that's when in Israel they would plant their plant mm -hmm. season is in autumn, which in America it's spring. Our right. rains tend to come in spring and you know, what is it April showers bring May flowers is mm -hmm. kind of the idea. That's how it is. So the idea that the slugger not plowing autumn is that he's not doing the work when he's supposed to be doing it. And won't and reap the harvest then when it's time for the, the harvest. harvest. Yeah, he will seek at harvest and he'll have nothing because he did no work. Again, I think um, Paul talks about this in First Thessalonians, about if if you do not work, you shall not eat. Mm -hmm. And that there is a principle in which God has called us to work and to reap what we sow and to be ones who are not lazy. God worked and he calls us to work. And this is something we are are called to do be to be like God and that God is still working and upholding the universe by the power of his word and has continued to do this work from the beginning. Yeah. And we talked about this again last week when we yep. talked about Proverbs 19 verse 24, where it says the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it up to his mouth. This is laziness. This, you don't want to do the work in the time that it's, supposed to be done so that you will reap the benefits of it. And, but then you want to go to others and say, Hey, give me what you've reaped, what you've sown. Uh -huh. And it, it says here that, uh, you'll have nothing, 
You know, I was at uh, college today, um, handing out tracks and um, seeking to share the gospel with students. And I got into a conver conversation with a, a girl who told me her name was L. And um, we were talking about enabling people and how there's people who just keep getting in doing the same thing over and over and over again. Right. And this to me, it, 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 it's interesting because this is what I was talking to her about. But then you think about this, you have this person who doesn't want to do the work is doing the same thing over and over again. He's a sluggard. He's lazy. Doesn't even want to feed himself. Doesn't even want to stick his hand in the food or hands in the food. Doesn't even want to pick it up to his mouth. And then yet wants others to bail him out, to help him, to give to him. Right. And there's, there's a point where people are just like, I can't keep enabling you. You need to realize your, your own slothfulness. Yeah. And just, uh, I felt it. So I've been gone all week or I went, I was gone this weekend, um, to a coffee festival for work. We did a lot of work. I came in today, had to go back to work. We got, we drove all day yesterday, come back. I don't want to do anything when I was at work. I was tired. I was on the road for nine and a half hours and then had to unload a truck. And obviously in being paid, you need to do it. But there's that aspect of when we work, in one sense, we're acting like God who worked in creation. And to, to think about how we reflect God in our work and how we take things that he has made and make them better, kind of cultivating that idea. And here, the slugger doesn't. He doesn't plow. He doesn't do the work to be able to cultivate the land to make it work for him so he can gather it. He just doesn't do it. And an interesting fact about kind of the soil in um, Israel today is that it very much closet, um, like gets very hard, clay like, and then you can't break it, you lose the land. So, the importance of kind of plowing it and keeping it plowed and doing the work, in one sense, allows you to keep doing it year after year. Because if you stop doing it, you cannot break it up again. It's no longer fertile land to be grown on. And so that also includes the importance of just that diligence and work and how work is rewarding, not only kind of just for the basics of life. Mm -hmm. Ecclesiastes brings this out too, that we shouldn't put all of our hope in work, but that we should enjoy our work and we should work unto the Lord. Yeah. <clears throat> And yes, uh, G consciousness says, uh, God ordained him that way. Yes. God ordained all things as an open theist. I pray you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, uh, and find truth in the scriptures and in the God who knows all things. Okay. So verse, uh, what are we at? Verse six here? No, verse five. Yeah. Verse five, the purpose in a man's heart is like a deep water, but a man of understanding We'll draw it out. Yeah, this is uh, one of them. 
I had to read this a couple times and then look into like, okay, what what is being meant here by deep water? Are we talking about you have so much knowledge, so much wealth within you of of, of a knowledge and understanding, or is this your your like everything is in there? Like man can't see what's inside of you, doesn't know the true nature of what you may be hiding. Although the one who is God does see all things. He's got these eyes of a flame of fire who can see through everything. All even the stuff you don't want people to know about, he sees it. And ultimately in the end, uh, he will draw it out and he will judge. Yeah. And to kind of think through it is that like the purpose in a man's heart is like a deep water. It's hitting, it's, it's down. And there can be this one commentator kind of looking at it is this idea of um, aiming to serve themselves. You Mm. see this self-servedness and it's, it maybe even it's deep. It's not on the surface. They, they may seem to be hoping others or want to help others, but it's kind of self-serving for mm. their own purpose. But that the man of understanding can draw that out, can yeah. can pull that out of the person with insight. And so you kind of see one person maybe trying to keep it in a secret, but the the man of understanding, the wise man, the man who's gain wisdom is able to kind of in one sense go into that depth that deep water and pull out the secret things and to reveal them and to bring them out and and if it's sin we should pray that god does that to us that the spirit reveals Mm -hmm. to us these deep sins that we need to put off to put away and maybe he and to not only pray that he does that and that you can find mercy but understanding that he may not he does that through the reading of his word the preaching of his word and in kind of fellowship with other believers as we think about these spiritual topics that god has given us what we need by the divine spirit with the help of the the spirit to kind of pull out the secret things of our hearts to bear them before the Lord and find forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like to watch <clears throat> and, and listen to like some true crime stuff where they're in, in interrogating uh, suspects. Right. And, that's what comes to mind when I think of this in, in an illustrative kind of way. They would ask such questions or, or questions in such a way to draw out information from the suspect to kind of find out, okay, is this person involved in this? Do they, are they the perpetrator? Uh, are they uh, bystander? What, what is it? And they ask certain questions in a way to draw that out. So, you know, as you was bringing that up, that's what's kind of coming to my mind uh, in that way. And, and ultimately, again, even as Christians, when we are talking with uh, those who profess to be in Christ, we can and we should um, 
as we're engaging, be discerning, be alert, be awake. And so as we're listening to things they're saying, again, not in a way, as we talked about, to be causing strife or to be contentious, but if there's certain things that they may be struggling with or trying to hide, you may be able to pick up on some things for your love for them and your care for them to see them uh, in right standing with the Lord or right standing with brothers and sisters, if there may be an issue there. And so you want to, you know, as you said, you know, you're trying to draw that out. I think related as we move to verse six, many a man proclaim his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find it. And to, to think about five and six in conjunction that you have the purpose of man is deep. And in, in one sense, they kind of proclaim their own steadfast love that there would be a brother and yet their actions don't bear. Mm-hmm. Who can find this faithful one? And again, you know, the bringing, thinking in light of kind of their purposes and self, self-finding that they kind of, in one sense, lie. They mm-hmm. proclaim their own steadfast love. They're, I guess, drawing on Matthew 6, thinking about people proclaiming their own righteousness. That's how they do it. Or um, even in Proverbs 13, we the fool kind of proclaims himself as a fool. You have this kind of this idea of a man proclaims that he's one that is a steadfast love. He's like God in that way, who is steadfast love. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you need him, He's not there. He he proclaims he's good. And I guess he speaks, but he doesn't walk. Yeah. And this is, again, another um, verse where you can look at a a parallel translation or another translation. And the King James says, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. And I, I don't, I haven't met a person, honestly, says many a men, but I haven't met a person who does not think they're good. Uh-huh. M- most of the time, it's according to their standards of what they believe goodness is. You know, I had a, a Muslim that I talked to today that told me he was good. And I said, you know, the Bible says none are good. No, not one. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. That's why we need Christ and the right Christ, not a man who's just a prophet, but the, the, the genuine Christ of scripture of the crew, who is the creator of all things, who is God in the flesh. This is the Christ we need because we have no goodness. As you said, we don't have steadfast love apart from Christ. Like we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So when God sees us, he sees us as good. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as saints, not as sinners, but it's not because of what we have. We have nothing of our own to bring. It's what Christ has given to us through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Yeah, and that's kind of so, kind of, yeah, so important into thinking about 
are what is steadfast love? What is proclaiming their own goodness? Mm-hmm. And God proclaims his own goodness. And he's God and he can. It's not sinful for him to do that. But he also is the one who gives good gifts. Mm-hmm. He he is the faithful one that you can find. He's always faithful. And as Christians, we should strive. When we read, who can, but a faithful man can they find? Can Are we willing to not only proclaim, in one sense, we proclaim the goodness of God and then seek people to find the faithfulness in him, but even as a community, as believers, to come together and be faithful to one another and to show that same kindness and proclaiming the kind of one sense, the kindness of the church and in, and therefore in acting and acting like the one whom has saved us. Mm-hmm. And when we think about proclaiming our own goodness or steadfast love or loyalty, as the Nasby says, verse seven moves into the righteous who walks in his integrity Blessed are the children after him. And to think about walking in integrity, walking in holiness, doing what God has commanded, brings blessed are his children. His children Mm -hmm. see the faithfulness. They see God. They just don't believe him because the parents say so. They, and hopefully walk in his ways. And even you think of people like um, his head, his name just escaped my head. I was just thinking about him. Um, You think about the deists in the 17th century, their goodness, their good acts, albeit apart from a saving knowledge of the Lord, they still, they reaped the benefit and had the morality of the Bible. They, in one sense, acted like a Christian. And there was great blessings. Jefferson is one. My wife chimes in. Not the one I was thinking, though, but he would be a good example. Um, and so to to think about that, but even more so the the family who passes on their christian values the kids who the lord has saved there is a blessedness mm-hmm. as opposed to when god reveals himself that he brings upon the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation that is the sin of the father will keep reproducing itself from generation to generation. So this is kind of the opposite, that one who walks in integrity will have a faithful lineage of family members and the mm-hmm. blessing continues. Yeah, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-six says, he is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Right, and so as you, as you said, Mike, there that parallel of the to the third and fourth generation, those who are these fathers who are, are just completely sinful and wicked, and passing that on. The same goes for this um, father who's living in integrity. Your children see that. When, even when I was in the military, right? We, we Christian integrity as Christians, we should have 
godly integrity. We, we should live the way we say we're living, not just when others aren't, aren't watching, right? Um, we should have that integrity. But even when I was in the military, this was a big thing in the army, like your integrity, because you're representing the United States, for me, the army, for you, the Air Force, and for every, any other branch, you're representing that um, a branch of military for your country. So your integrity needed to be held up. Right. And even more so as Christians, we are representing Christ. We are Christ followers. We are to be Christ like we are to display that kind of integrity, uh, and not be someone who says one thing, but lives contrary to that when nobody's seeing, nobody's watching. Right. But we do it uh, even going back when you think about the the goodness of the, these Pharisees thinking themselves good. And um, uh, what verse did I Luke 18, 11 and 12, where it says the Pharisee standing, he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this. Uh, these men, these extortioners, these unjust adulterers, these Pharisees were wicked, too. But in in public, they they were able to uh, show like clean the outside of the cup while the inside was filthy. Uh -huh. We need to be men of integrity, especially those, again, of us who are in Christ. Yeah. Um, Benjamin Franklin was the name I was trying to think of. Um, yeah, wasn't Benjamin Franklin the, the uh, friend of Whitfield, George Whitfield, where he would go? And I think I heard read something or heard something along the lines where he would go to listen to Whitfield preach in the fields and kind of like try to measure how far he could hear him preaching from a distance, but yet yeah. wasn't a genuine believer. He wasn't. Yeah. From what I remember, I don't think they were friends, but Franklin was very intrigued with George Whitfield for his, um, oratory skills. But yeah, he did. I think measured him how, without amplification measured how far he could hear him. It was like four blocks or something like that. Mm. And, and I think it might've been in, in Philadelphia where he did it, but yeah, he was definitely intrigued with the skills of, uh, George Whitfield. Mm -hmm. Moving on to verse eight, a King who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all uh, evil with his eyes. You got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. Winnows, winnows here. Let me look at this kind other of, translation. It's is uh, um, to, to kind of spread out or to scattereth. Yeah, scattereth. Scatter. Yeah. Um, yeah, scatters. So yeah, a king that sitteth on his throne of judgment. I mean, these are kings who execute judgment. They are the judge, jury, and executioner. Right. Uh -huh. This is we we think of David and Solomon. Solomon, who was known as this wise king, who people would come to, you know, have their disputes um, decided. And I think of that story where the two women, you know, the one one woman's baby dies, and and so the other takes the 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 child that she's living the the lady's child that she's living with, and says, "No, this is my child. Yours is the one that died." And here's Solomon, who's this judge. He's He's um, sitting on this throne and making this judgment. And he says, well, let's cut the child in half. And that's this wisdom. He's executing this wisdom because the, the true mother is going to be like, no, you take him. I don't want my child cut in half. It's going to care more for the child. Right. And so it's sitting on the throne of judgment, 
uh, and scattereth away with his eyes. As I mentioned earlier, with the Christ being the ultimate judge, the ultimate king, the king of kings, eyes of flaming fire. He sees right through you. So th mm -hmm. this, I think, could mean that in that sense that you can't get away with uh, hiding anything from this judge because this judge is going to be able to discern and judge rightly. And then it could also be the fear of not wanting to come before this judge because, you know, this, this, this judge can see through your, your lies and your deceit and you're trying to manipulate to get your way out of something. Yeah. Just remember, and God knows all things mm -hmm. and to, to think about it and just the importance in which the Kings are in our case, the government have when they sit on their throne and they give judgments, they try the cases, they pronounce judgments on evildoers. This is what um, Romans 13, talking about the government, that they are to, to punish evildoers and to honor the good and to call us as Christians to think about what does it mean to execute justice in our land and that justice is executed properly knowing that when justice is executed properly that evil scatters it's not part of it if the government actually gives out the punishments they say they're going to give out there is a deterrent there now the foolish people will still do it they will still think they can get away with it but in general, the land is better off. It will deter people. So it causes us to think about if we have if we have the ability to elect judges, like in Kentucky, we do have that, or even who we elect into the places of power that have that type of authority like in Congress at the state level to think about it because we know there is a judge over all the earth who will execute, who will scatter evil when he comes to judge on the final day. Like there's no if, and, or bits, buts about this judgment will be served. Death will be defeated and the earth recreated without sin no more need for judgment because the second judgment has occurred and those who are not names are not written in the book of life will receive the just punishment they deserve for rebelling against the god of the universe yeah and this next verse is the title of our program tonight episode number four five hundred and forty nine i did correct it because we weren't in the fives or fifty so um uh, but it's who can say I have made my heart pure? Who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from sin or from my sin. And nobody, nobody can say that their heart is pure apart from Christ. Christ is the one who cleanses our heart. As David cries out in the Psalms, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Right? Mm -hmm. Because even David, a man after God's own heart, didn't have a pure heart didn't have a, a clear heart, a clean heart, pure heart, because we're all born 
with a sin nature. We're all born in rebellion against God, born sinners. And therefore, it is only when Christ transforms us and washes us white as snow that we can have that pure heart, that we are then can say, you know, I'm clean from my sin. Yeah, and to to think about even the... I mean, to to think about this in a way of how uh, the covenant of creation and then the downfall of it, and to kind of see thinking that we can make our hearts clean to purify ourselves is trying to do what Adam could not do. Adam had the everything needed to have obedience to God as our representative and failed. And now we have this sinful nature that we must overcome. There's one sense in which you can say, have I made my heart pure is be the um, Pelagianists who would say that, well, I've never sinned against God. I've always made the right choices as if that's a possibility. And to, to think about our condition that Adam left us in, that he fell from the state wherein he was created, Baptist Catechism, if you want to know where I got that. And that... You got to make a shirt, something with the catechism. We have to, yeah. <laughs> and to to think about then what that means as our federal representative, and that we can't make our hearts. There's one sense, who can say it and no one can, but then we also need to realize that can't make our hearts clean. We can't cleanse ourselves from our sin. And that we need, as you've mentioned, a righteousness from another who can cleanse us from our sins. And we have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, again, my conversation that I had with this, this young lady at the college today, um, she was telling me she gets a bit confused. One of her parents is a Roman Catholic. The other parent is a Jew. And so she was kind of confused. And then so she read a little bit of different religions, trying to understand, and said, you know, really what people miss is all of them have a lot of things that they agree with. And so I look at all the things that they agree with, and I said, yeah, but, but here's the thing, right? The Bible makes it exclusive that it's only Christ who can deal with our sin. Those other religions, it's all man trying to find a way to clean themselves, right? It's man trying to find a way to be right with God. So, in a sense, having a pure heart before God or a cleansed heart before God. But none of those religions can do that. I said even Christianity, 
I said, when people want to argue sometimes with me that why is Christian God the true God? Why is Christianity the true religion? I'll say to them, well, because while some people will say Christianity, it's just man's way of trying to control people. Well, yes, there are commandments given in the scripture, but guess what God says about those commandments? You can't keep them. You can't do them. And yes, the Bible says that when, when the, the, what is it? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, well, have you kept the commandments? He says, oh, all of these I've done. No, he didn't. Nobody can keep the commands. Nobody can live up to that perfect standard. So here's this religion that says, obey Christ, but guess what? You can't do it. Here's this religion that says, believe in Jesus, but guess what? You can't believe apart from God doing a work in your heart. So what sense does it make to say all these religions have something equal? All these religions are man-based, where Christianity, biblical Christianity is, this is a work that God does. God transforms the heart. He cleanses. He cleans. He purifies. He justifies us. There's nothing we can do. Now, that doesn't absolve us, if that's the right word, of, of responsibility, because we're compatibilists here. We do believe that man... Um, acts according to his nature. He makes choices or or makes uh, according to his will, according to his nature, does things, but only when God transforms that and sets you free. Now you can freely choose to walk upright, walk in integrity, as we talked about, or fall into that temptation. But even if you do, as a Christian, fall into that temptation— He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all sins when we confess it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, uh, not much more to add there. Let's move on. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And here, unequal weights, unequal measures... Um, most is dealing with trading that maybe you have a weight when you are buying something that's a little bit lighter so you can get a better deal. And then maybe you sell something and you have a different weight so that you make a little bit mo more money instead of having a standard weight or that you have, a bigger vessel to buy your grain at so you get more for a set price but then use a smaller vessel to sell so you can sell more get more and that these are deceitful it's fraudulent have, have you ever stealing. seen have you ever seen the commercial or it's not a commercial because mcdonald's would not do this as a commercial but it's a video somebody did where they had the um, medium-sized fries or regular-sized fries, small fries, whatever, and then a medium and a, and a large or extra, whatever they are, right? The three different sizes. Yeah. So you have this small little baggie of fries and they took it and they dumped it into the next level, next up size, and it fit in there like as if it was just given to you. And then they took it and dumped it in the bigger one, which is skinnier but taller, and it was the same, it was full, Right. So yeah. that comes to, that comes to mind as again an, an illustration for me as I'm thinking through what you're saying here is this being deceitful 
it's the same amount of fries, but let me charge you more money more for the same thing. And thinking if you're getting, and then to and play it get, off as if you're getting more. Mm -hmm. Now I'll be truthful. I don't know if those are real or not. I've never tried it myself. Um, Cause you can do things with camera, but I think it is a good illustration if it's true of mm -hmm. what McDonald's is doing and that it's an abomination to the Lord and the Lord does not like unequal weights or unequal measures. That is, you should have the same measures no matter what, when you're buying, when you're selling, when you're doing things, you shouldn't be deceiving people or defrauding people of their stuff in order to become rich or to kind of, in, in some sense, you're stealing from them. And to, to think about how we treat others. Do we treat others the way that we want to be treated? Do we want them defrauding us by using unequal weights and unequal measures? And to, to kind of think about in light of the golden rule, and how do we act among the other people? Or are we trying to deceive them in order to take advantage of them? Mm -hmm. Verse 11. Do you have anything else to say? No, 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 we're good. Yep. Verse 11, even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Yeah, I mean, Matthew 7, 16 tells us that you will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, right? And so as the Proverbs here are telling us, even a child makes himself known. And as he's growing or she is growing and, you know, this is why it's important for parents to kind of curb some of those things when they're getting older. I think I was reading in, uh, which I just got because you constantly mention, um, uh, what's his name? Um, the commentary by, uh, I just got it. I can't think of the guy's name. Who do you always reference? Charles Bridges? Yes, Bridges. <laughs> the Proverbs. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, Mike's always mentioning Bridges. I got to go get this. <laughs> so, um, but I think he says in here, uh, what does he says? Oh, he says, no wise parent will pass over little faults as if it was only a child's doing or only a child doing childish things. Everything should be looked at as an index of a secret principle and the work or word judged by the principle. If a child is be if a child be deceitful, quarrelsome, obstinate, rebellious, selfish, how can we help trembling or how can we help trembling for his growth? A docile, truth loving, obedient, generous child, how joyous is the prospect of a blossom uh, and a fruit. And so as a parent, when you see these these um, actions of your child, you want to curb them. You want to help them to not, you know, um, live this out. But even a child is going to show their acts. They're going to make themselves known by their fruit. You're going to know. Yeah. And once sense, this is the opposite of what we talked about last week. I just had it. Here it is. Verse 26 in chapter 19. 
He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is the son who brings shame and reproach. I guess it's not opposite, but explains or pulls together a little bit kind of broadly what there is said specifically that a child will be known by his acts. And I mean, I've taught children for, I think I'm in my 10th year now teaching second through fifth grade. And there are children you just know are going to be more difficult to handle in the classroom. And there's going to be children who are not. And to, to think about, and this is not a fault of their parents. They have made themselves known by their acts. And some of them, you know, showing, I guess, more fruit of the spirit um, as their parents are training them. And some are, like me, when I was younger, a little bit more hard-headed. And it takes a little bit more beating to get the wisdom in the head. And not, not beating them in the head. Yeah, the discipline. <laughs> right, no. I, the discipline required to get the knowledge in the brain. And to, to think about even earlier mentioning earlier about walking integrity and the blessedness the children have of that, that a child takes is going to be known by what they do and the reflection. And we see it in society that children who have loving parents or live in maybe different social economic areas perpetuate the environment in which they're grown into. And this we need to consider and think about it even as we raise our own kids. What do we want our kids to think about us as a family, as we grow them together? And as parents, we should think about how we want our kids to be known and to especially to be known as we train them up to love God and to be mm -hmm. known as those who love God, whose conduct is pure and upright and is acting in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Proverbs 22, six, and you said, train them up, you know, and that's what it says, train up a child in the way uh, he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Um, and we haven't got there yet, but that's this idea. And that's why I think it's important at, at a young age. Now, I don't think that you can't, I don't think God is incapable of anything. So yeah. even if you get a late start, and I think we've talked about this before to try to encourage parents, even if you get a late start, maybe you come to Christ and your kids are 10, 11, 12 years old, right? Um, and so you haven't, been raising them to know the Lord, God can still change their hearts, right? He changes, he ch changed my heart at 32. So God can still change the heart, but you're still responsible at that point when you become a Christian to, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know, I think of this with, with homeschooling with our children. I, I tell my wife this often. I said, you know, I feel like if our children would have been homeschooled from the earliest age, we probably wouldn't have 
the pushback that we get sometimes from our older children because they've been in school and they were in a Christian school, but they were in school with other children. And so they have this idea or thought like, now I don't have any other kids around. And, you know, like they're just, sometimes they want to push back for that. But with our youngest, she hasn't known anything but homeschool. So I think there is this, there is this natural tendency to when this is what you know, this is what you're being raised in, to not have that kind of pushback. But again, it doesn't mean that if you start to homeschool your children or you start to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, that God can't do a work in their hearts because he can. We just have to, as parents, stay faithful in seeking to raise them that way and stay in prayer for them that God would turn their hearts towards him. Amen. Verse 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Now you might think, well, this is kind of a truism. Of course God made them both. God's creator of all the earth. It is a little bit more deeper than just that a simple fact that God made a hearing ear and a seeing eye. But that what does it mean to have a hearing ear and a seeing eye? And this is where we dive deeper and kind of thinking about listening and observing. Hearing can have this idea of to not just hear something, like I hear birds, but a lot of times hearing in the Bible is associated with hearing and obeying. You hear the word of the Lord. There's a sense in which you understand, and then you do. And seeing the same thing, you, you see something, you observe it, but it's not just seeing for seeing something, but that is to be acted upon. It's to be known. And that the Lord has made them both. That is, the Lord opens our hearing and our seeing to him. And it's the fool who does not hear and obey, who does not see and continues to act in a wickedness towards. So this isn't just a truism about God making ears and eyes and the functions, but really what is the moral state? Are you one who hears God's words and obeys or are you not? kind of comes down to and it is god who has made them it's the god it is god who opens the eyes so you can see and opens your ears so that you can hear you got anything else can you hear me no well it's because my internet says it's it's going out so oh that was I'm, like I'm still here yes i can't okay. hear you yeah. It says Sorry, I'm currently offline, but I'm like, okay, I'm still here. So I'll just press through. Hopefully people can hear me outside of this. No, we can move on to the next one. Okay. Verse 13. Love, not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. Yeah, love, not sleep. Um, 
again, hopefully you can still hear me. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, this idea when we talked about the sluggard, we talked about that being slothful, being lazy. Um, sleep is not a bad thing. It's a natural thing. It's something we need, our bodies need. God has given it to us as a gift to uh, replenish us, to give us the, the energy for the next day to carry out our tasks. So sleep is not a bad thing. But when you love sleep in such a way that you, you, you make it an idol, you make it this, this thing in which you, you don't get the work done that you need to do, um, again, as we talked about the sluggard, we, we look at um, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. It says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So again, it's not that sleep is wrong. It's not that sleep is sinful. Sleep is necessary. It's needed. We need sleep. Again, to, to replenish the body, to give us the rest we need to carry out our duties. But when you make those things an idol, when you're slothful and lazy and all you want to do, I'm guilty of this. There's days where I don't feel like doing much and I would rather just lay in bed and watch some TV or do nothing, right? So it, it happens. And then here, this convicts, it's like a sluggard, you're being slothful, arise, awake, go do something, you know, go do some work. Do something productive, you know. I seen a, um, uh, it was a picture somebody shared on social media of a person saying, I have all these plans to do on my day off. And then, but then my day off comes and it showed like, it was like a little cat behind some pillows just in the bed and like, but this is what I end up doing. <laughs> like not accomplishing the things that, you know, I wanted to get accomplished when I'm thinking about my day off coming around. <laughs> Yeah. And there's a balance there. Yeah. There's good. It is good to rest. And God has built in an idea of rest and to think about, to, to think about rest. That's, as you mentioned, sleep is good. It's when we abuse the good gift of sleep does that become slothful and that we're not doing what we're called to do to, um, to work and to enjoy and that with work, the benefit of it is that you have food, you have possessions and you can live in this life. Okay. Two more verses. We're almost there. Bad, bad says the buyer. Bohemian goes away. He then boasts. Yeah, this, this one, one is confusing. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> I was saying this one's a little confusing. I'm not sure I quite understand it. Well, the way I'm taking it is bad, bad says the buyer. So the buyer comes in and basically the way I take this verse and looking at some commentaries, looking at Gil as well, is that this man comes in and he basically is deceptive to the seller, treats the seller unfairly. So we go back to the unjust weights and scales comes and says, look, your product is not good. Your product. And he, he haggles and works his way to maneuver, to get the price down low. Like, look, it's not worth this price to get it down to where it's, you know, low and then goes away 
and boasts about, look what I got for this amount. This is what the commentaries as I was looking at. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Gil says, uh, it is not, it is not, saith the buyer. He says, he undervalues them, says they are not so good as they should be, nor as cheap as they as he can buy them. So he basically finagles his way to get this product for an unjust way. Because even when we talked about an unjust scales, right? And we talked about it's not just from the buyer's aspect, but the seller, right? You yeah. don't want to rip off. Like if somebody's working hard and, and we may not think of it this way because the way that people, people build things or make things in mass product, and a lot of times, some of these things are cheap. Like you go into like some of these stores, and they make it mass. It's not. It's not like it's just cheap quality things or whatever, right? So sometimes we don't think because we're not thinking in first century kind of, or not this ain't first century, but even further back. This idea when let's say if you're a farmer and you're out farming and you're working to plant your crops, to harvest your crops and all this work that you're putting in and then you're selling this product and somebody comes along and they undervalue your product, your, your grain or your wheat or your, you know, your animals that you're, you're farming and you're not getting back in return the, the value. Now you can maybe give a discount or, or whatnot to somebody, but if you're getting undercut as the seller, how are you then able to provide for your family, to provide for yourself, right? And so these equal measures of, of unjust scales, it's not just the person that's selling, but also the buyer here. And this buyer is taking advantage of the seller. I got nothing to add. We'll go to the final verse. All right. Verse 15. There is gold, an abundance of costly stone, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. And I think as we think about this and kind of as we maybe kind of fitting into not only the show, but in Proverbs in general, that gold, while is good, there's like a wage there. The abundance of costly stones kind of shows your the value, the wealth, and all of their true value is in knowledge. It is it is knowing and acting. It's acting in wisdom, and that it's better to, as we've have seen in other times, it is better to be wise and poor than to be a fool and rich. And that while the gold and costly stones have made great values in the eyes of the world, especially kind of in light of what's happening in England, and you got the giant, um, the crown jewels, um, which will sit upon King Charles's head in the coronation. And we can look at it and we can see all the costly, valuable things in this world. And yet... It is knowledge, kind of this, in one sense, immaterial item that possesses more value mm -hmm. than gold and, and jewels. And 
Well, the Proverbs just talks about it in knowledge. The Psalm makes it explicit about how God's law, God's words are these precious jewels that are more costly than gold and silver. And so a call here, not only when we connect the wisdom literatures of Psalm and Proverbs, is that it is the knowledge from God that we should be pursuing and that is much better to have in our possession than the valuable things of this world. Yeah. And I, I think this is interesting too, as it says, there is gold and an abundance of costly stones. Like I look around, I don't see gold everywhere. I don't see um, rubies and other jewels, costly stones everywhere. But the proverb saying, there's more in abundance of these than the lips of knowledge, which are a precious jewel. So we know that the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge, right? And so if you don't fear the Lord, you lack wisdom. You lack knowledge, and this is more precious than those earthly things. When we look at um, Proverbs 3, 14 and 15, which we've covered this chapter already, you can go back in our Proverbs playlist on YouTube, and uh, you can go and listen to the whole series of Proverbs up to where we are right now. It says, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profits better than gold. Um, in Job 28, 12 through 19 says, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. And the sea says it is not in me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its place. It cannot be valued in gold or ophir in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of the crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. I mean, man, you think about that, right? Wisdom is a precious jewel, and Christ is the wisdom of God. And we need Christ. We need Christ. That's what we all need. Yeah, to finish out the show, um, Bruce Walke, as he finishes the last sentence of this verse in his commentary, he talks about it. It is, it is incomparable, superior to any treasure because, as chapter 3, verse 15, she is, wisdom is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her, makes clear. So that verse makes clear it brings riches, honors, long life, and peace. And we know that these are good gifts from God that he gives to us. And to, to think about then this wisdom and what it brings. Wisdom brings good gifts because wisdom comes from God, who is the giver of good gifts, including the wisdom that we get. So Amen. that has been episode number 549 who can say i've made my heart clear thanks for joining for us if you enjoyed the show go ahead like it share it with your friends do appreciate that though we don't always say it or maybe it's just because everyone else says it but we do appreciate it join us next week 
9 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and Facebook as we record live. Thanks for all of you who've interacted in the chat. And we'll see you next week. God bless. God bless.